you have a uh, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to the book of Hosea. You may say, Hosea, is that in the Bible? It is. Uh, and probably the best way to tell you to get there, since this is not a, a place that uh, you may visit often in your Bible, uh, is to just go to the table of contents. Uh, at the beginning, find Hosea. Hosea is actually uh, part of a, a, a group of small books. They're actually the last 12 books of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. Not that they were unimportant, minor, but because they're small. Their books are shorter than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, but uh, hopefully there in your table of contents, you'll see Hosea. Uh, and turn to Hosea chapter 11. Uh, we're continuing this mini-series through Advent, looking at the heart of Jesus. Today, actually, we're going to look at the heart of God. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, so that what is true of Jesus is also true of God the Father. Um, now, let me give you a little bit of background before I read the passage. Old Testament prophets uh, can be an intimidating lot. They say some strange things. Uh, they say extreme things. They can do some extreme things. Uh, and most of these books are not written in story form. They're actually compilations of, of speeches. Uh, and so it can be uh, somewhat hard to understand them. Uh, but you can simplify the message of the prophets very broadly. Uh, you can simplify the message of the prophets down to really two broad points, curse and blessing. Those two words characterize the message of the prophets, curse and blessing. Uh, so the curses are what happens when Israel breaks God's covenant. Uh, the word covenant is big in the Bible. This is God's uh, loving relationship with his people. He calls it a covenant, uh, and it is administered by God's law, God's laws. Uh, so if you were to go and read the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, that's the, that's the fifth book in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you would find there a description that... That book really summarizes God's covenant relationship with his people. It talks about their history, it talks about the laws, and it gives a series of consequences for keeping those laws. Curses for breaking them, uh, and blessings for keeping them. And then if you fast forward several hundred years to the prophets, you will find that the prophets, the language of the prophets actually is very reminiscent of Deuteronomy. Basically, God uses the prophets to bring a case against his people for breaking his law. All right, in that sense, you could say that prophets are like covenant lawyers. Uh, they're adjudicating or they're, they're, they're making a case. And this happens every day in courtrooms across the country and around the world, right? To, to, to be a citizen of a particular place is to agree to this set of laws. And when you break this set of laws... Uh, you are in violation of that, then there are consequences for doing that. Uh, so that's, that's the curse theme in the prophets. But then there's another theme, and that's the theme of blessing. And this theme is where God promises to restore his people after the curse. Now, here's what I love about God, 
And what I love about understanding his word. That before God ever enters into relationship with his people, before he ever enters into covenant with them, he knows they're going to break the law. From the get-go, he knows they're not going to keep the covenant. And you can see this if you go back later and read Deuteronomy 29. As Moses is speaking to the people, he's very frank. You're not going to be able to do this. You won't do it. And that does not keep God from entering into relationship with them. He knows we're going to break covenant, and yet he enters into relationship with us anyway. He enters into covenant anyway. Because he knew that he would do what was necessary to keep the covenant. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, particularly in verse 6. That God, after, after his people break faith with him, break covenant, and experience the curses, the consequences of breaking covenant with God, he rescues and redeems them anyway. That uh, is the theme of blessing. And it, too, is all over the prophets. And both of those themes, curse and blessing, we actually find in today's passage. Uh, we're going to read Hosea 11, 1 through 11, uh, as it reveals to us the heart of God. So let's, let's consider God's word together. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. That word, that name Ephraim is synonymous with Israel. Same. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I had healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Hosea paints us a pretty... Simple picture, 
We have the picture of a loving father and a wayward son. And so that's how we're going to look at Hosea 11 today. And we're also going to see that love has the last word in this story. Let's talk about this loving father. God is a loving father. Verse 1 sets the stage for us. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Deuteronomy 7. Again, the, the language of the prophets is full of, uh, of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When God says, I called my son out of Israel He's reminding us of history. He's reminding us that, that Israel has no claim on God. Israel, uh, Israel cannot deserve to be saved by God. Right? This relationship was of grace from the very beginning. Right? Israel, Israel can't say to God, we deserve to be your people. We deserve to be rescued by you. You owe us. No, no. There's, there's no entitlement with God. He owes us nothing. What, what began this relationship was not Israel, but God. God summons Israel, calls Israel, drags Israel out of Egypt. And Moses tells us in Deuteronomy, he does it because he loves us. Uh, that his... That when we, when we look at the relationship, that it's all of grace flowing out of the deep well of God's love, that there's nothing underneath the love of God. It's simply the unfathomable love of God. A deep, deep love of Jesus that we just sang about. Look at the way that God describes himself as this devoted and caring father, right? I, I taught him to walk. I taught Ephraim to walk. I, I picked him up. With his hands, his arms. I led them with bands of love, kindness. Eased the yoke on their jaws. This is the, this is the language of slavery here. Uh, that, that God relieved uh, the burden of slavery from his people. I bent down and fed them, healed them. God here is the best father. I don't know what your experience of fatherhood has been like, whether you've had a good one or a bad one, but even the best earthly fathers can't even begin to match the fatherhood of God. He is not cold and distant. He is not annoyed at your presence. He is not so self-absorbed that he ignores or merely just puts up with us. He is not manipulative. He is not inconsistent. He is not abusive. He doesn't spout words of affection one minute and vile poison the next. He doesn't fly off the handle when easily provoked. 
God is also not mushy or soft or unreliable. He doesn't speak idle words. He doesn't promise one thing and then do another. God is the best father Christian, if you, are, if you are in Christ this morning, that is who God is. That is his character towards those whom he loves. He is the best father. But we see that this is a somewhat one-sided relationship. That even though God is a loving father, he loves a wayward son. Look at verse 2. The more they were called the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. That's heart-wrenching. The more the father beckons, the more his son revolts. Maybe you've had that experience as a parent. It's devastating. No matter what you said or did, all of the ways that you tried to show love, your son or your daughter just would not reciprocate. They just continued to run. God understands. Because that's exactly God's relationship with his people. The more they were called, the more they went away. In fact, it would appear as if God God intensifies his calling, they intensify their rebellion. The more they were called, the more they went away. Now, we should say that while there may be some reason with earthly parents, right, even the best, most well-intentioned parenting is tainted with sin. But no fault can be found with the Heavenly Father. He does not go astray in His parenting. No, the fault here is with the children. Look at how... They and we are described in verse 7. My people are bent. The word there literally is hung up. My people are hung up on turning away from me. Hosea is saying that, that despite God's efforts in calling, the people seem morally unable to respond. Unwilling to respond. It doesn't seem to matter how much kindness God shows, his people are determined to reject him. We sing it in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, didn't we? Prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If you've, if you're honest, that's your song. It's the song of Israel here, it's our song, Prone to Wander. And we see in verse 5, again, God is not mushy. God doesn't promise one thing and then do another. God, like any good parent, disciplines his wayward children. And we see that in verse 5. The people experience the consequences of their rebellion. Uh, There's a verse 5 there. Instead of saying they shall not return to Egypt, that can actually be translated differently and means they will surely return to the land of Egypt. So because the people have not returned to the Lord, he will let them return to the land of slavery. 
You may remember a number of years ago, we went through the book of Exodus together as a church. But you may remember in that story that as Israel is rescued and redeemed from Egypt, how often they said, when they were in a tight spot, how often they said, oh, that we were back in Egypt. Right? When they were a little bit hungry, oh, that we were back in Egypt, there was food there. When they were thirsty, oh, that we were back in Egypt, we at least had something to drink. On the very verge of the promised land, when they get the report that there are giants in the land, they say, that's it, we're going back to Egypt. We at least knew what we could expect there. Is that your relationship to your sin? Isn't it interesting how often the slavery of sin feels more comfortable, more familiar, maybe, uh, Proverbs says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so does a man return to a son. That's, that's what we do. We're always we're hung up on always going back. That walking forward with God is, is, is too scary, too demanding. And so we want to go back. God says they will return to Egypt. Assyria will become their king because they have rejected the Lord as their king. They've rejected their loving king. God says, okay, I'll give you another king. And he will not be gracious. He will not be good to you. His sword will come against you. His sword will ravage your cities. And that's exactly what the Assyrian Empire did to the northern ten tribes of Israel in 722. They ravaged and exiled all of those people. And again, there's a, a, a different way to translate there where it says, um, uh, the sword will consume the bars of their gates. That, that word bars can also mean false prophets. I know that's confusing, but um, so it is. Uh, basically, if that's right, then what, what God is saying is that the very people who led Israel astray, the false prophets, that the sword would fall particularly against them. Right? Here's what a, if, a, if, if a prophet's job, a true prophet, represented the God of Israel, he spoke truth to the people, false prophets would come along and say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's going to be fine. God's not going to do anything like what Hosea is talking about. It's, it's going to be fine. You guys just keep living the way you want to live. Keep worshiping the Baals. Right? This was a series of false gods that was worshipped at that time. You just, you just keep doing that, right? Because it's, I mean, like, the number of gods, the more gods you have, the better off you're going to be. We've got to make sure every area of life is covered. It's like, uh, it's like the Geico commercials. More is always better. Right? And so if you can multiply false gods, that's insurance, baby. So, yeah, you just, you just keep worshiping. The Baals, don't you worry about guys like Hosea. They, you know, they've got a problem. And so Hosea says that that's exactly who the, the false counsels of those prophets is who the sword would come against. That because Israel had turned to dead gods, not, living, not the living God, but because Israel had turned to dead gods, they would receive a kind of death. So these verses remind us that there are consequences for sin, even for the people whom God loves. 
Now you may ask, well, how, hold on now, how can a loving God punish people? I mean, isn't that antithetical to love? Let me ask you this. Is there anything worse than an apathetic parent? Is there anything worse than a parent who is so unconcerned with the well-being of her children that she refuses to take any kind of action? No, we would actually say that's not loving as a parent. That, in fact, we would say that's the opposite of love, is to show no concern for waywardness. And so, yes, there are consequences even within the love of God. So that's it, right? That's it. We get, we get hung up in our sin. We get hung up on turning away from the Lord. Sin seems appealing and promising. Slavery feels comfortable. We face the consequences. Scary, right? The sword is, the sword is fallen. What, what can be done? Well, I want you to look at how love has the last word in this drama. And here, starting in verse 8, God gives us a, a glimpse of his, of his inner life, of his emotional state. And, and I, and I want to be so careful. Uh, right? I, I, I don't, we're not trying to drag God down and, and make him us, make him look like us, make him think and feel like us. We're made in his image, not he and ours. So I want to be careful here. We don't want to be irreverent. But God does reveal his heart in these verses. God reveals his heart to Hosea and to us. Look at what he says in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These two cities were completely annihilated along with Sodom and Gomorrah. What's God saying? I can't treat you like I treated them. I can't, I can't bring down the full vent of my burning wrath against you. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? There's even a sense in which the justice that Israel deserves is not the depth of what God desires for his people. He wants them to know his mercy more than his justice. When God demonstrates his justice like this, Isaiah calls it his strange work. Because God reveals himself as one who delights to show mercy. It doesn't mean he's not just, but it means that at his heart he is merciful. So he says, how can I totally annihilate you like those cities? My heart recoils within me. My heart recoils. There's really two ways we can understand this. Either, right, one of emotional turmoil. That's how the ESV translated. I, I like the way the, the NASB says it. My heart turns over within me. And again, if you're a, a parent and you've watched your children do destructive things, or maybe you've been a child and you've done destructive things, you get a sense of how your parents feel, right? That, that heart-wrenching, that heart-turning over in your chest, 
wishing that you could draw them back from the brink if they would just listen. God says, my heart recoils. It can also mean a change or a reversal. Uh, so some English translations take that route. That God says, my, I've had a change of heart. And I would say that the two go hand in hand because God's heart is turned over within him. He recoils from sending his full wrath against his people. He draws back from that. He doesn't want to do that. Seeing the distress of his people, rebellious as they are, facing the consequences they so rightly deserve, what is God moved to? He's moved to compassion. He says, my compassion grows warm within me. God feels pity. And so he says, I will not execute my burning anger. God will not give full vent to his righteous wrath. He will not totally destroy his people. You know, Jesus told a story about a father like this in Luke chapter 15. You probably know it as the parable of the prodigal son. There are actually two sons in that story, and both of them spurn their father's love. But we're most familiar with the first, who approaches his dad, the younger son. He approaches his dad, and uh, he asks for his inheritance, which you know is kind of insulting if you're still alive. But he asks for his inheritance, and then he takes it. And he runs off into the far country, and he spends his father's wealth in riotous living. He wastes his father's goodness, worshiping false idols, we might say. And then he comes back. He comes to his senses and he returns home. And what does the father do? Well, we're we're told that the father sees his son coming from a distance. Where does that mean the father is? He's looking for him. We might say he... He's standing on the porch, scanning the horizon, waiting for his boy. And as he sees him off in the distance, he runs to him. And he scolds him and tells him to go clean out the pig pen, right? No. He gives him his robe. And he gives him his ring. And he gives him shoes for his feet. And he says, my son has come home. That's the love of God. Move to compassion, even... When we sin, even in the face of the consequences of our sin, I will not execute my burning anger. In fact, we see in verses 10 and 11 that he will call his people home, that he will roar like a lion and his people will come running back. Now, how can this be? How can this God of justice also be moved to compassion? How, how can he be just... And merciful. God identifies himself in a strange way in verse 9. He says he will not execute his burning anger because, he says, I am God and not a man. He says, I am not like you. I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. Now, how do you think that sentence ought to finish? When you hear the Holy One in your midst, how do, what do you think the next words are going to be? We would think, well, I am the Holy One in your midst. I will come in wrath. 
But that's not what he says. He says, I'm the holy one in your midst. I will not come in wrath. I will not execute vengeance on you like you would. I'm going to do something different. How? How can God do that? Well, look back at Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt I called my son. That verse, that phrase, pops up somewhere else in the Bible. Actually pops up in Matthew chapter 2. Just after uh, the boy Jesus has been visited by wise men from the east, Joseph, his father, gets word that Herod's death squads are coming. Herod was a, a tyrannical sociopath, uh, and he was threatened by anyone who would... Anyone who would challenge his throne, Herod wanted to put them down. He even had his own family members killed because of this. And so when Herod hears that a king has been born in Bethlehem, he sends his hit squads down to Bethlehem to kill every child two and under. Joseph hears about this. God tells Joseph through an angel. And Joseph takes his family and they go to Egypt until Herod dies. And then we're told in Matthew 2.15 that after Herod died, Joseph brought his family back out of Egypt and that this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now those two things don't seem to go together quite on the face of it. But you see, when the first Israel came out of Egypt, they came rebelling. They came with hearts hung up on running away. They came, in other words, like you and me. But then another son is brought up out of Egypt. Another Israel. His name is Jesus. And he does not run away from the voice of his father. He runs to it. He listens to it. Indeed, as uh, singer... Andrew Peterson sings in the chasing song. Jesus chased the money men and he chased his father's will. He chased my sin to Calvary and he caught it on that hill. You see, a more faithful son came out of Egypt. And rather than run away, he ran to the will of God. Are you in Christ? And if you are, God will never give you up. He will never hand you over. He will not come in wrath against you because he came in wrath against his own son so that you would experience all the delights of his love. Pray that you come to Jesus this morning. Let's pray.